Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Lila Corwin-Berman to talk about her new book, The American Jewish Philanthropic Complex, The History of a Multi-Billion Dollar Institution. Listen in as we talk about the history of philanthropy in American Jewish life and what it tells us about American Jewry, America at large, and capitalism and its culture. Lila Corwin-Berman is professor of history at Temple University, where she holds the Murray Friedman Chair of American Jewish History and directs the Feinstein Center for American Jewish History. She's the author of numerous books, including The American Jewish Philanthropic Complex, which we're talking about today, as well as Metropolitan Jews, Politics, Race, and Religion in Postwar Detroit, which appeared in 2015, and her 2009 book, Speaking of Jews, Rabbis, Intellectuals, and the Creation of an American Public Identity. I'm so excited to share this episode. As Lila points out in her book, philanthropy is something that touches on all aspects of our lives, and we should think critically about how it operates and what that means in historical and cultural terms. I hope you'll check out the book, and I've also linked to an excerpt. Thanks for listening. Hi, Lila. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm so glad you could join us to talk about your book, which is really, it's just so phenomenal. I think that there are so many different things that we can talk about from this book and all the different issues that it really raises. I think that, that one place for us to get started, really, is to think about the manifold ways that philanthropy touches our lives. Well, you know, when I started working on this book, although I realized I had lived a life that was really very much shaped by philanthropy, it wasn't really something I had given a lot of thought, you know, and then once I sort of went back to try to create an inventory, I was a little bit shocked, <laughs> you know, like I literally did try to sit and kind of calculate like, okay, how much money has been invested in me and, you know, my family, my children, whatever, through philanthropy, you sort of realize it's everywhere. And in a sense, maybe that's why I hadn't seen it that much because it was just seemed natural. It was just the world I lived in. And it's not just in my world as a person who happens to be Jewish, but in museums I go to, newspapers I read, the radio station I listen to, kind of every facet of my life had some kind of imprint of philanthropy. So like in a certain sense, I think it makes sense that you know, this isn't a topic that people necessarily think of studying that much because it just feels very ubiquitous. But then when you kind of take a step back from it and think about, well, how does this work and why does it feel like it's so natural, it's so inevitable, you realize like most things, it has a history. And this thing that seems like it's so familiar and has always been the way it may appear in our lives today actually has really changed vastly over time. And so that was kind of like the animating question that I had, you know, even on a kind of philosophical level, like what are the things that we just take as being very natural in our lives and how can we sort of dig into them and understand how they formed and how they developed into feeling like these structures that are so, so natural. Part of what you're pointing out here is the way in which so many of the institutions that we interact with, like you mentioned, museums, newspapers, radio stations. Many of them are charitable in their structure, right? They're 501c3s, like thinking, you know, about museums, for instance, 
or they are subsidized to a large extent by foundations or other kinds of charitable donations. I think that this is an element that people recognize. We understand this. We just don't always give it a lot of thought. I think that there's all sorts of ways that you can think about even when you go to a university. I mainly thought about how I paid tuition at the college that I went to as an undergraduate and that tuition was paying for my education. But actually, the college I went to had an endowment and it had donors who gave and it had a whole other structure that tied it not really contractually in terms of relationship to me, right, as kind of the customer who's paying my tuition to go there, but actually tied it in arguably a more contractual way, both to the donors who gave money to it and to the American state that in various ways subsidized that. So I think that you suddenly realize in a sense that like the room is much fuller than you might have thought. Or if you think about the people who are like 18 to maybe 30 or whatever now who go on a trip to Israel through birthright, generally, I think it, it feels like you think of that as, okay, here's like this college student and they get accepted into a particular birthright program and they go with a bunch of other college students and there are counselors or leaders who go with them. Then maybe you realize, oh, well, who's paying for this, right? Because it's free. Well, of course it's not free. Someone's paying for it, right? So who is paying for it? How do the mechanics of that work? And how is that person or that entity, that foundation, that federation, whatever it might be, involved then in a relationship in terms of what the program is, but also in a relationship, again, with entities of the American state, right? Because any of that money that is given to a 501c3 is also tax-wise being subsidized by the American state. So you suddenly have like a much more interesting set of actors that really alight on these kinds of nonprofit institutions, right? That make them actually, you know, fairly complicated sites for thinking about how power operates. So that is an incredibly kind of rich place to start to ask questions about different structures that individuals inhabit and how those structures delimit the kinds of power that operates and how those structures have changed over time and why. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the way in which we have to have a critical perspective on philanthropy. And I think that this is a, a very narrow line to walk, as it were, because on the one hand, I think that we all kind of recognize that philanthropy and charity are social goods. And this is the reason why the state subsidizes, essentially, through making it tax deductible. So while we recognize that, that philanthropy is a good thing, why is it important for us to have a critical perspective, to bring historical perspective and how do we do this in a way that still also recognizes that philanthropy is a social good? I don't know that I am so interested in starting from a kind of normative statement of whether something is or isn't a social good. For me, the important thing to think about is how do these different kinds of forces that continue to shape people's lives, how do we understand their historical formation? And how can that help us ask different questions about the way they're operating, and maybe eventually those normative questions about whether or not they're doing the best that they might be able to do. So it simply, you know, is a fact that this system of philanthropy exists in American life and certainly exists in American Jewish life, and it has a history. And to understand that history, we need to ask what I would call critical questions, which doesn't mean that we need to, you know, condemn it or roundly criticize it. But the very basic question of saying, how did this thing develop into what it is? 
is already itself a critical question because it's making us kind of pull back the fashioning of something being just natural or inevitable and having to ask, no, you know, what were the different contexts and forces and conditions that caused it to be developed? So one of the responses that I would receive when I would tell people, especially people who were working in the world of Jewish philanthropy, when I was talking to them about the book I'm writing, they would say, you know, clearly it's going to be very important that you talk about how generous American Jews have been, you know, and they would talk about the fact that over time, American Jews have given high levels of charity and that they're very philanthropically minded. And in my mind, the critical question there is not to say, you know, do we praise or do we not praise people who've participated in this system? The critical question is to ask, how have people been conscripted into this system such that it seems like it itself defines what is generosity? Because we also need to ask, about other ways that people might have been using their resources or other ways that the American state might have been using its resources. So how does this particular system come to define a mode of generosity? I mean, the intellectual project of this book is really asking about how an institution was shaped and how it was formed. Right. I mean, I think that this is a key distinction that we always need to be making because critique does not always mean critical, right? Those two words have a linguistic relationship to each other, but there are different modes of doing this. And I think that intellectual critique is really a central animating process that we need to be applying to all aspects of life and all aspects of history, even to things which we understand are generally good in their nature. They also have a history, like you said, they also can be looked at from a critical perspective without condemning them. Absolutely. One of the things I want to pick up on is there are a lot of assumptions that center around philanthropy. And one of them perhaps is the notion within Judaism of tzedakah, charity, giving, and so on, that, that because it is embedded within Judaism, people assume that it, it has no history, that it's kind of been there from ancient times up until the present. But I think that part of what you're doing here, which is an important intellectual move to do in all areas, is just to say, well, what is its history? You know, how has it changed over time, as opposed to just being this ahistorical, unchanging thing? So with this in mind, what actually is the history of philanthropy, whether we're talking about it within Jewish life, broadly speaking, within the American Jewish context, what actually is this history and why is it so important to see philanthropy as something which has a history, as opposed to just being this thing that exists in the world and always has existed and always will stay the same? So one of the puzzles of that question is actually how to define what philanthropy is, right? So the way I primarily define it in the book is the divestment of one's private property for the public good. But what's really important and actually speaks to your question is that that is not necessarily a historically accurate definition at all times and moments. So there have been times, even in the history of the United States, when it might have been more accurate to talk about philanthropy as actually, you know, being much more embedded in public and state institutions. And it might be more accurate at other times of talking about philanthropy as specifically a religious mandate. Right. And it might be more accurate at other times to talk about philanthropy as a counterculture. So part of, I think, thinking about what does it mean to tell the history of philanthropy or what is the history of philanthropy is actually being able to understand that the, the thing itself under study, the object under study is not necessarily stable. So absolutely. I mean, we could go and look at ancient Jewish texts that talk about tithing, that talk about people all giving a fixed sum, whether it's a percentage or actually an actual fixed sum, to some kind of 
communal kind of body to be doled out in a way that supports everybody in the community. And we might say that that has a sort of phenomenological longevity, that there's something about philanthropy that it operates in different social spaces, different communal spaces to try to tie people together, to try to act, to tie people together by having some kind of equalizing power to it. But it's not the case that across time, that's how it's always functioned. You know, in fact, there's been other cases, you know, if we look in the early modern period, we might find cases when, you know, those who had the most resources, who were able to use that to take care of other people, did so in a way that was really about making sure to keep a social structure in place, not to equalize, not to tie themselves to other people, but to very fundamentally say, I'm above you, right? This is my station above yours. You know, the way that I think about philanthropy operating across time, or really the history of philanthropy, is to think about how it's an artifact of or, or a, an outcome of social conditions that are constantly asking questions. How do groups of people stitch themselves together? And how do they deal with the basic problem of resource allocation? And so, you know, in a sense, that history is as broad as like the history of the world, right? You know, I mean, those are like, really fundamental questions, you know, but it's also thinking about that through a kind of particular economic lens. How do communities stitch themselves together by asking questions about resource distribution? And sometimes, so in the Jewish history of philanthropy, those questions were sometimes asked very specifically within Jewish communities, and sometimes were really about interaction with non-Jewish communities or non-Jewish leaders, right? What kinds of taxes in the Middle Ages did Jewish communities owe to particular rulers? Or how did the kind of resources of the Jewish community come to serve as a proxy for Jews being able to claim that they had a place of importance when it came to, you know, operating in a particular kingdom or under a particular regime? I think it's so conditioned by the environment in which it's occurring, which to me is why it's really interesting and why the ability to talk about the history of philanthropy I think, is also the ability to talk about philanthropy. It's actually, I think, quite impossible to name it as a historical force, even though we might say that there are certain like ideals like Sadaka that kind of cross time, but are mobilized in totally different ways at different moments. Right. The different configurations of philanthropy, generally speaking, and specifically within the Jewish context, speak to much bigger issues about the place of Jews within whatever society they find themselves. So, for instance, one can talk about ways in which certain philanthropic activities have to do with Jews trying to make themselves seem to be not a burden to the society in which they live, right? The idea that Jews take care of themselves. Also, ways in which Jewish philanthropists have used, this is especially true in the American context in recent generations, that philanthropy is a way for Jews to exert power you know, within their society at large. And this is only two of many different ways, but I think that part of what you're pointing at here is the way in which philanthropy is like a big tent for a lot of different questions to be asked about the nature of Jewish societies and their contexts. Absolutely. So in my work, I kind of chose a particular angle, which was really about American Jews' relationship with the American state. But I think that there are a whole slew of questions that I didn't really address. I mean, I think that there are questions about gender. There are questions about the racial and racist politics of capitalism. And there's effective questions about emotion. You know, some of these I touch on, but 
you know, it has the ability to be a kind of meta category for understanding a whole number of different kinds of relationships. I think turning to the American Jewish context in particular, you talk about what you call the American Jewish philanthropic complex. And I think it's in the introduction, you make a comparison between this philanthropic complex and the military industrial complex. Could you maybe say a bit about what you mean by all of this? And what is it that we gain from such an intellectual and historical framework for comparison and thinking about it? So I wanted to offer some kind of framework to think about kind of the system of American Jewish philanthropy. And I was really trying to talk about the emergence and development of a kind of system or structure. It seemed clear to me that it was going to be helpful if I had some kind of framework or terminology to use to talk about that. And the reason the idea of the complex was appealing to me was really like three different facets to it. And absolutely one of them was thinking about Eisenhower's, you know, sort of departing speech about the military industrial complex, where he admonished Americans that, you know, when you had a public system and a private system that became so closely interwoven that neither was a check on the other, you had to be careful about how power was operating. You could get into a situation where you'd have a kind of feedback loop where the actions of one were sanctioned because they benefited the other and vice versa. And it was hard then to ask critical questions or to raise critique in any sustained way because the system would become so tight and self-perpetuating. And I think his sort of extreme example was, you know, that wars could be fought, not because the war should be fought, but because it ended up that it would be good for this kind of relationship between military industry and government. The actual object of the thing would become immaterial because it would be instead about this kind of system of benefit without much opportunity to bring in checks or balances to it. So that sense of a kind of system that that interwove public and private in a way that started to feel, you know, very tight and very inevitable, like these two things sort of had to go together, like, you know, this kind of process of the public subsidizing these private philanthropists and the private philanthropists in turn becoming absolutely needed by the public, and yet very little kind of ability to ask questions about consent and whether the public was being served by this, um, seemed like it offered a kind of apt way of thinking about what emerged by the final decades of the 20th century in terms of the system of American Jewish philanthropy, which was a, a kind of tight system or a tight loop of public and private. That was one level that complex was a compelling kind of framework for me to think about. And it also allows us to see the kind of interaction between the sort of mandates of democracy and the pushes and expectations of capitalism, right? Whereas philanthropy, you can see philanthropy as sort of being a fulcrum on which democracy and capitalism might be balanced. It can also become relatively imbalanced in various ways, right? I was also thinking, you know, about two other levels of complex. First, that the system itself is pretty complicated. You know, whether you're thinking about all the different acronyms to really try to understand American Jewish philanthropy, you suddenly are in this sea of acronyms of different institutions and organizations, or thinking about kind of the dimensions of tax law and, you know, how obfuscatory it can be. So you don't even know the questions to ask. There's a way in which it's a very complicated system, sometimes by design, and of course, complex also brings to mind a kind of psychological state, right? And it really was striking to me how much in that post-World War II period, 
the trauma of the Holocaust was really delimiting a lot of what philanthropy came to mean. A lot of the kind of symbolic significance of Jewish wealth turned into philanthropy that came to exist. And so that kind of sense of having a kind of effective and psychological dimension was also part of why I thought complex was a useful vocabulary. Yeah, there's so much, I think, to dive into there, especially in terms of the post-Holocaust context, which I think I want to return to in a few minutes. But I think that part of what you're saying here is that in a certain way, you know, looking at things from a contemporary perspective, but like you said, even just over the past few decades, that American Jewry and America kind of more broadly is operating under a regime of philanthropy and the way in which philanthropists, charitable foundations, they have a very large power in society, which is in some ways unchecked because they don't really answer to anybody except for their own board of directors, as it were. And so part of the question here is, how is it that philanthropy has changed American Jewish life over the past century or so? And what does it say about the relationship of Jews with each other and also between the Jews and the American state? I think that a really important kind of structural shift in American Jewish philanthropy and American philanthropy more generally is basically a kind of shift from a focus on the circulation of philanthropic capital to a focus on the accumulation of philanthropic capital. It was striking to me to trace the shifts that happened from the late 19th century to 60, 70 years after that. So the basic structure of American Jewish philanthropy in the late 19th century and well into the progressive era and through World War II was really the system of federation, right? A system of a kind of umbrella charitable organization seeking often smaller donations from lots and lots of people, and then every year allocating those donations to different causes and different agencies. Where that money was allocated and how much was allocated was all part of a process of negotiation. And there were people who had much more power in that negotiation and people who lost power in that negotiation. But the basic sort of technology of it was about a kind of circulation. The federation system was probably the most important kind of infrastructure of American Jewish philanthropy in the early decades of the 20th century. But there were lots of other kinds of organizations that operated in kind, right? That they would rely on these kinds of annual donations, citizen philanthropy, right? You know, lots of people giving and that that money would be circulated. And the reason someone would give again the next year was in a sense because they saw the legitimacy of the organization being shown by the fact that it fulfilled its mission by circulating that capital. And in fact, in federations, there were bylaws that would limit the amount of capital that a federation could hold on to in any given year. You know, they might allow a very, very small amount to be held in a reserve fund or an emergency fund. Those were the kinds of terms they would use. But there was no sense that money should be siloed or warehoused in these organizations or that money would somehow grow in perpetuity for something. It was much more of a sense that that money would be circulated. And part of this reflected in the beginning of the 20th century a clear kind of backlash against Gilded Age practices, right? Where you had the top 1% or whatever really hoarding a lot and lot of money and wanting to hold on to that money for a very long time, wanting to pass it down. And then you had political will for estate taxes, political will to break up monopolistic entities, all of that kind of stuff, right? That sort of tried to pull it apart. I have found in the archives 
Jewish leaders who were the heads of these different organizations saying, we don't want to be like Carnegie. We don't want to be like Rockefeller. We're not a charity trust. That's bad, right? That's not good power. That's anti-democratic. All of that critique of philanthropy operating in service of like holding power for a few was also in the air, I think. There, though, starts to be a kind of shift, a shift away from the kind of politics and economics of circulation toward a prioritization of the accumulation of philanthropic capital. And this happens slowly, really, from the 1940s to the 80s. And I would say that this is the most seismic kind of shift. It involved not only a shift in financial technologies, but also a kind of shift in culture to say that instead of this philanthropic capital serving its purpose by being circulated to solve particular problems, the public good, it, by growing in accumulated funds and endowments usually, that in and of itself is already somehow in anticipation of its purpose of meeting the public good and that that is a virtue. I think that you're telling a story here. It's not just about America, it's about capitalism. What is the nature of the economy, right? Is the nature of the economy about the circulation of capital and money and resources throughout society? Or is it more about the accumulation of more and more and more in the hands of a few and what that represents? I mean, I'm thinking also about just in the course of this past year with the pandemic, the debates about university endowments and how they should be utilized to provide relief, whether it's for students, employees, whatever. And the fundamental argument from the side of the university, I can understand this and understand where it's coming from, is that those endowments have very strict rules and they're essentially there to be in perpetuity as opposed to circulate that capital among the members of that institution. There are so many different angles to this. I don't know if you want to comment on this question of circulation versus accumulation and what this means in terms of the broader historical context and even up until the present. In truth, I think if we look materially at the history of that kind of shift, one of the biggest actors in it is the American state and its tax policy. And I think that that was something that became really, really clear to me, that it wasn't just happenstance or, you know, the natural cycle of history or even just of capitalism that led to this shift. That after World War II, there were particular policy changes around philanthropy and around what kind of money could be designated as being philanthropic and thus get an exemption from taxation or the expenditure of public dollars to subsidize it, what kind of dollars could do that? And what were the kinds of rules or restrictions or regulations that would be placed on them? And those kinds of shifts that American Jewish philanthropic organizations were intimately aware of, these mattered to them as much as, you know, a fundraising appeal to go get money to help Jews who are living in a war-torn area or to help poor Jews who are living in certain circumstances in an urban environment or whatever it might be, the intimacies and intricacies of American tax law were just as important, arguably more important. And so there was a great deal of energy starting in the 1950s and really ramping up in the 60s and 70s among American Jewish philanthropic organizations and their tax attorneys, sometimes staff people, but often volunteers to really understand the intricacies of American tax code and to go and lobby for policies that would be beneficial to the ability of these philanthropic organizations to get as much tax benefit from the American state as possible. And at the same time, 
there are these broader trends of privatization that are kind of running up against what had been a kind of New Deal economics vision of not a socialized state, but more of a social welfare state, let's say. So this kind of basic question of whether the function of an American state should be to subsidize various private actors and let them make decisions, or should it be to be able to take in some percentage of private wealth and allocate that to the public good. And so there's this like big kind of debate going on and American Jewish organizations are absolutely in the thick of it and start to have a perspective. And that perspective more and more is that it is better for these Jewish organizations if they are, and the language that was often used is this, if they are freed from the constraints of the government, which in turn meant actually if they are allowed to have advantageous subsidies from American taxpayers, from the government. Part of what you're getting at here relates to the bigger debate, which has taken place over the past decades and and continues in the present moment about the best way to allocate funds for the public good. Right. And so there's all sorts of facets of this, right? So people will say, well, government is not very agile. It's not a risk taker. I think there are arguments about pluralism, that if you have a strong state making all the decisions about how to allocate funds, you get a kind of uniformity and you really quash any idea of pluralism, right? All of these are fair and important debates to be had. As it turns out, the kind of trajectory after World War II is more and more toward putting more power in private entities to make decisions. And some of that happens through corporate tax law and business practices, and some of it happens through charitable tax law and through ideas of philanthropy. And in fact, that some of those social welfare programs that are set up by the New Deal, instead of actually being directly funded by the American state, come to be indirectly funded by it, and instead private entities become the kind of service providers for social welfare. So, you know, another major shift that happens in American Jewish philanthropy is that many of those agencies that have been funded by federations um, now can be funded by American grants, right? By grants from the federal government. If they're dealing with issues having to do with education or health services, you know, any kind of social welfare thing, they have to adhere to some different regulations, right? And have to ask some questions about sectarianism. But it frees up the ability for other kinds of money that federations are raising to operate differently. And in fact, to become part of that more accumulative logic, because these agencies that had once been so reliant on the monies that federations were raising now have access to a different kind of public dollar. So all of these kinds of questions about, you know, what is the relationship between the public and the private? And what is the role of the government? You know, if the government is in a certain sense contracting, but in another sense, becoming really a kind of body that is subsidizing all sorts of private entities, like who's really calling the shot? And how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of what you're getting at here is the nature of public. What does it mean for something to be public? Or what does it mean for something to be communal? Absolutely. And I think that ends up being a really like thorny question. And even as I was working on this book, there were times when I had to stop and say, like, I'm using the word public, but I think I'm talking really about this kind of communal Jewish public, right? And is that the same as, you know, talking about kind of an American public. And I think that that question even in and of itself, right, a kind of question about how civil society works, who gets to even define what is public, right, what public resources are, that I think is kind of a thorny issue 
when you're talking about subpublics or subgroups within a public. But there's also sort of a question about, is there a way of thinking about public property or communal property that offers a kind of helpful framework? So in other words, you know, if we look at a major Jewish foundation, maybe Schusterman, is the corpus of that foundation, is it Jewish communal property? Is it American public property? Is 30 or 40% of it that is, you know, sort of subsidized through tax benefit, communal property, public property? And the reason that question seems important is because then does that mean that there should be a wider set of actors who have decision-making power, right, than the people who are just sort of listed on the 990 tax form as part of the board of directors? I'm glad that you mentioned the term communal property. This is an issue that I've been interested in for a while, thinking about the nature and the meaning and the function of communal property, especially after the Holocaust. In my own work, I'm really dealing more with communal property in the sense of cultural capital as opposed to financial capital, things like archives, libraries, things like that. But ultimately, I think you're asking this series of questions about who gets to control the property of the community you know, or the property that is in the interests of the community. And you mentioned earlier how the post-Holocaust era was part of this shift. And one can ask this question of to what extent this represents a broader shift in the American political environment and the emergence of certain kinds of philanthropy and structures and so on. But also there's this element of what the Holocaust did to the way in which Jews in general, but American Jews in particular, thought about their future. Because when I think about communal property and the struggles over who gets to control communal property, what you see is you have groups that step in and say, we should be in control of communal property in the interests of the Jewish people. You know, for instance, groups like Jewish Cultural Reconstruction, you know, which was led by Salo Barone and Hannah Arendt. You know, it was a New York incorporated, and I actually have to double check if it's a nonprofit in the 1940s and 50s, I would imagine so. But either way, the point being is that they step in to say, we're going to take over property looted by the Nazis and seek to reallocate it in a way in the interests of the Jewish people as a whole towards the continuation of Jewish life around the world. And I think that part of what's interesting about your discussion here of communal property in a financial sense is that it's not that different, right? It's the sense of a group of leaders, whether they're intellectual leaders or financial leaders, communal leaders in any different type of sense, who want to step in and say, we fear for the Jewish community's future. And we want to allocate resources in a way that will help to ensure that. And I think that that's part of the bigger story here. One thing that can make it tricky is some of the folks who are involved in this will say, you know, it's only by my generosity that this is even turned into communal property because this was my money, right? And then I'm making, you know, sort of the decision to put it into this kind of financial structure that yes, you can maybe see as being communal property, but it still was my money, right? It's still, you know, was something that belonged to me. So there's this kind of issue, and especially as you get the rise of these private family foundations, which really does not start to happen until the 80s and 90s. There were very, very few of these private family Jewish foundations until that time. But when you have the rise of those, you know, that are named after a family and often that have a living donor who's an earner who's kind of putting that money in, you know, the line between what was private property and what becomes communal property is awfully tricky. And there's this like doubleness to it where, you know, out of one side of a foundation's mouth, there is an impulse to kind of name this communal property and it's operating in the good of continuing a particular kind of vision of a Jewish future. And then out of the other side is, you know, this kind of fetting and lauding 
of the individual for more often than not generosity. So even, you know, from that kind of perspective, you can see like a great deal of tension in how that kind of property is thought of and how it operates. But one of the interesting things, and I think this has probably a lot of resonance with what you mentioned as being part of your work, is that after the Holocaust, a big shift that I noted in American Jewish philanthropy is a shift from material-based philanthropy. So money that was meant to pay for the material needs, often of new immigrants who were coming in, who needed vocational training, who had immediate material needs they needed met, to philanthropy that was meant to serve identity-based needs. And even the construction of that category of identity is really sort of of a kind of post-war moment. But what it means to think about kind of investing resources and thinking of property as itself a kind of proxy for identity and thinking of that property, the extent to which it can survive, the extent to which it can be perpetual as somehow symbolizing the extent to which Jewishness or Jewish identity will also survive, right? That the ability of the future to be funded is the ability to imagine there will be a Jewish future. Property itself becoming a way of thinking about and dealing with really the trauma of the loss of so much property and the loss of so much human life. And I think that there's really no accident that the rising really fervor for endowment and for holding on to Jewish philanthropic dollars comes at at this kind of growing consciousness of just what those losses of World War II really signified for Jewish life. And obviously the losses of human life, but also the vast losses of property. You know, and the money was never really going to replace that. But insofar as the money might be able to exist forever, it could offer something that nothing else was offering. I mean, this is fascinating. You're kind of saying that the philanthropy in particular, the kind of philanthropy in perpetuity was a kind of stand-in for this idea that the Jewish people would survive forever as well. So as part of my research, I had like well over 100 different conversations with people who work primarily in American Jewish philanthropy, some adjacent fields, some working outside of Jewish philanthropy, but in American philanthropy. And one of the people with whom I was speaking was the head of a federation, of a Jewish federation. It was a Jewish city that had been more robust and had had a greater population, was experiencing sort of atrophy, but had a lot of, the, the federation still happened to have a fair amount of capital. And the person said to me, there may be no more Jews left living here, but damn it, we're going to have this money. We're going to have this this capital, right? And like, I just remember thinking like, that's profound. And then much more recently after really the book was more or less done, I heard somebody talking about this thing called the Jewish Future Pledge, which was a sort of, is this plan to get people who are boomers, who are planning for their estates to allocate 50% of their charitable estates to this Jewish Future Pledge, meaning that that money would go toward Jewish identity and or state of Israel kinds of causes. And the person who was talking about this and their hope is to put like a handful of billions of dollars in this because there's going to be this massive wealth transfer from that baby boomer generation. And as the folks who were really the conceivers of it were talking about the Jewish Future Pledge, it was also so clear. They said this, that they don't really trust their children or their children's children to know how to be Jewish or to really be able to kind of be the stewards of a Jewish future. But like, damn it, there was going to be this money. So you hear an an incredible amount of kind of trauma in that, which is disturbing, you know, and it's sad in many ways.
but it's also really, really fascinating to think about what this kind of property might do. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big issues here standing behind a lot of what you've been talking about and what you discussed in the book has to do with the relationship between capitalism and democracy. And one can talk about this in, in a very general sense about America, about the world. But within the Jewish context, it's really in many ways about who gets to speak for American Jews and who gets to set the priorities of American Jewish life. And I think that you've traced here ways in which the concentration of capital in the sense of the American Jewish community within itself, one can also, again, speak about this in terms of America at large, the concentration of capital in the top you know, tenth of a percent of the entire society or whatever. But ultimately, the way in which that concentration of capital leads to a concentration of decision-making power. And I think that this is a really important thing to comprehend because um, I think that people often talk about a certain kind of voluntarism within American Jewish life on a fundamental level, right? This is the basic building blocks of American Jewish history going back to the 19th century, right? With the emergence of competing synagogues and, and so on and so forth, that basically Jews can organize themselves in whatever way they want and that no one really speaks for the Jews. And yet we see, especially today, a way in which elite class of donors gets to set priorities based on what they want to fund. Like you said, this fundamental way in which perhaps some people don't trust other Jews to maintain their future. Without getting too cynical about it, it's a way in which we see certain programs that exist on a national scale that really set priorities for the Jewish community. And I think about, you know, for instance, Birthright, PJ Library, like some of them are also more local or regional, but philanthropy you know, has played a role in terms of this question of who speaks for American Jews, who sets the priorities of the communities, and really who gets to set the, the sort of the direction for the future, whatever that means. The one thing you'll start to hear when you talk to people who work in philanthropy is that it's not political. Nonprofit organizations are not political. 501c3, you have to sign off on not being political. And this was something that I certainly heard a lot in those conversations that I was talking about. And it led me to feel pretty curious because there's an awful lot of capital in this system. And capital usually means power and power usually means politics. I think that really one of the important forces that delimits how philanthropy has worked in the United States is this fundamental disavowal of being political. While at the same time, this system being like, you know, so fundamentally tied into how power operates in American life. This became really, really clear as I was looking at how in earlier periods than our own did different kinds of American Jews who had status in the American Jewish philanthropic world, how were they using that status in various ways? And Max Fisher ends up being an important character in part of the book. And he was sort of a carryover character because when I wrote about the city of Detroit, after World War II and Jews leaving that city as different racial politics and economics were shifting, Max Fisher was somebody who had appeared because he was from the city of Detroit. And he became a major player in the national system of federations in the United States by the 1960s. But he was also kind of making his way up into the leadership of the American Republican Party, supporting the gubernatorial bid of Romney in Michigan and eventually supporting Nixon for his various presidential runs. And it became clear as I started to read the correspondence between Max Fisher and Nixon, because Max Fisher had this role in American Jewish philanthropy, being able to be kind of a deal maker 
And, you know, people would say when Max Fisher got up, people would give money they didn't even know they had. Right. You know, he had this kind of convening power and he was sort of able to translate some of that power to also being able to be appreciated in the world of political fundraising and appreciated by Republican Party operatives who saw him as a link to even greater potential that existed for fundraising among American Jews. And Fisher then gets an appointment in the Nixon administration as a kind of liaison to the American Jewish community. And just to sort of trace the way that he, and I don't think there's any reason to necessarily, you know, say that there's nefarious intent. This is simply how the system worked, that he was able to sort of exercise these two forms of political influence, one off of the other, by gaining stature in the Nixon administration and having a certain kind of stature among organized American Jewish life and trying to create particular kinds of intersections that he believed could be mutually beneficial. But just a great deal of politicking that went on. You can absolutely see how he was able to promise certain perks to different friends of his in return for, you know, say if they would open up their Rolodexes and invite people to fundraising events. And then he would say, look, I'll give you an audience with Nixon and we'll make sure that, you know, your concerns qua Jewish concerns, get a kind of hearing. This very like fundamentally political lever that American Jewish philanthropy was really able to be, and I think continues to be, that somehow is often disavowed. I mean, I think you're making a really important point here that everything is political. You know, even theoretically, 501c3s are non-political entities. Well, humans are political animals right? Everything we do is political. And even the act of saying something is not political is a political act. I mean, part of what I was thinking about here was this tension between voluntarism and the centralization of power in the American Jewish community and how philanthropy has affected this kind of historical aspect of American Jewish life as it has developed over the past 200 years. I think there's a few ways of thinking about that. Like, there is a danger of a kind of disaffection The logic of voluntarism is that people will take of their time or of their property and give some of it because they feel like it matters. And I think that as you have a system of American civic life and American political life that is more and more dependent on the spectacular wealth of fewer and fewer people, it can be much harder to feel impassioned by the idea of voluntarism. Like, what the hell is it going to matter? The little bit that I can give, the little bit of time, is just not going to matter. It's going to pale in comparison to these few players that are, you know, able to give so much more and that are able to have so much more kind of convening power. So it can become sort of corrosive to that idea of voluntarism. And I think it eventually sort of by and by can become corrosive to the very idea of a kind of civil society. That when power starts to really calcify in very few places, right? When you start to see a kind of movement toward an oligarchic social order, it can lead to like a great deal of disaffection. It can lead to a kind of hollowing out of a public. And I think that in certain ways, we can see that in the last couple of decades in American Jewish life. Lots and lots of people feeling like these major institutions, these legacy institutions don't represent them, don't speak for them, but that they don't have really anywhere else that they feel like they can amplify their voices. And then when it comes to political leaders or, you know, Jewish voices being put out there as 
representing the Jewish people in the United States, right? A kind of artificial construct. A bunch of people who are speaking who seem completely divorced from the reality of the Jewish lives of many, 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 many Americans, it can start to really like fray this system, right? And you can see it even in a partisan fashion that, you know, we know that 70 to 75% of American Jews vote for Democrats. But when you look at the American Jewish voices that have like the most power in American political life, you don't see that same kind of breakdown, right? And when you look at the kinds of statements and acts that different American Jewish organizations make, that they're, you know, being so careful to not be political and not be partisan, often they're also really thinking about particular major donors that have a politics that are much more to the right than many American Jews. So, what, you know, what does that do for a kind of system of voluntarism? It unfortunately, I think, can create a great deal of alienation. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are areas in which we can see a disconnect, generationally speaking, on certain key issues relating to the Jewish future. I think that this question of who gets to speak for the Jews, I mean, this is a, a longstanding historical question, right? One can go back, think about, you know, the history of court Jews, right, you know, in early modern Europe. And what does it mean for different people to have positions of leadership, where that stems from, and what that means? I don't know, there's a lot to think about there. Absolutely. And it's not as if there's one form of social organization that is necessarily the silver bullet, right, that would necessarily solve all this. But I do think that when you have a system that has become less and less participatory, that you do end up kind of jeopardizing the value of lots of different people and a diversity of voices feeling like it's worth their while to be part of something. That's the real danger. And no matter how much power and how much capital you have, it doesn't necessarily solve that. But there are a number of other issues standing in the shadows. And the big one is anti-Semitism. I mean, there are a couple of different ways in which it's relevant. And one of them is that in a certain way, anytime that people talk about Jews and economic history or Jews and money, it invites anti-Semitism, right, to some extent. And so part of the question is, how is it that we talk about these issues of philanthropy, of Jews and capital and Jews and capitalism? while dancing around the specter of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic canards and tropes. And then the second thing is that there is not just anti-Semitic tropes, but actual real anti-Semitism that targets American Jewish philanthropists. I'm thinking particularly about George Soros. How do we deal with these issues of anti-Semitism, both in terms of how it is that we can approach the questions of Jews and finance, just in general, and also the way in which certain philanthropists have been the target of anti-Semitic attacks? Those are really important and hard questions and questions that in many ways kind of loomed over my work on this project. I certainly had people warn me that I needed to be very, very careful with the terminology that I used. I had people tell me just to drop the project because it's just inappropriate. We don't talk about Jews and money and this can really do no good. You know, look, in a certain sense, because this is such a kind of hot button issue when it comes to thinking about tropes of anti-Semitism. You could ask the reverse, which is how can we not talk about this? You know, do we just leave this and either act as if, yes, oh, this has to be such a cloaked thing or act if we keep our eyes closed and we don't see it, then no one else is going to see it. I really refuse to believe that darkness is the right approach to this. Now, I have no kinds of delusions that anything I write is going to like cure somebody who has anti-Semitic views of their anti-Semitism. I have tried my best to be as historically 
accurate and precise as possible and to make it very difficult for somebody to manipulate what I'm saying in order to put forward an anti-Semitic agenda. But at the end of the day, like I can't necessarily control that. But I think there's actually a great deal of importance to talking about finance and economics in a historical way. And this loops back to where we started in a sense, because it makes it really clear that this is not, you know, some kind of essentialized way that you can understand who a Jew is, because a Jew has a singular relationship to money or to economics or to finance. What you learn when you study this stuff is that Jews are embedded in financial and economic systems that exist within the different Jewish communities and exist outside of Jewish communities and exist at the intersection and that they change over time. If one is caring to think about accuracy in history, it makes it quite impossible and improbable to draw any kind of essentialized relationship between Jews, not just American Jews, Jews and financial power, because these things all exist in contingent and conditional relationships. And in the case of American Jewish philanthropy, that a kind of core vector of that contingent relationship had to do with the policies of the American state. And American Jews were absolutely interested in them and in dialogue with them and in negotiation with them. And they were not ever the sole authors of them, right? And they were participating in many structures that were not of their making. Yeah, I mean, I think one issue that we haven't really talked about too much here is Israel. But I think it's one that's really relevant in as much as, I mean, here, to a large extent, you're talking about the function of American Jewish philanthropy within the context of the U.S. But so much of American Jewish philanthropy is directed towards the state of Israel in one fashion or another, whether we're talking about a program like Birthright, right, which is meant to strengthen the Jewish self-identity of participants through travel to Israel, or whether we talk about American Jewish philanthropy, which is directed at supporting Israel through Israel bonds. I've always found it so interesting that Israel bonds are kind of like sacralized through Yom Kippur and the bonds appeal, right? But there's so many different ways in which philanthropy in the American Jewish community is related to Israel in one fashion or another. I think that you can trace a kind of ideological narrowing that happens apace the accumulation of American Jewish philanthropic capital in fewer and fewer places, right? As it becomes more and more the case that there are these massive endowments and that you start to have more and more private family foundations started by Jewish families and, you know, these kind of particular figures or institutions that really have convening power over this capital, it does seem to follow that there is also a kind of ideological narrowing. And that is most visible in thinking about politics related to Israel. And this ties back into an earlier point about the kind of disavowal of philanthropy being political, right? Because you have a sort of parallel structure whereby these kinds of institutions are saying, you know, American Jews' relationship to Israel is not about politics. It's about love and it's about identity. That same kind of language and the manifestation that American Jews seem to know best in these final decades of the 20th century of identity is through capital, is through giving financial gifts and kind of exercising that identity-based relationship through a kind of financial relationship. It seems to certainly be the case that as the kind of power structure of American Jewish philanthropy calcifies in various ways and calcifies according to certain rules of finance and deregulation of finance, you know, of the American state, 
that there is also a kind of calcification of a particular kind of limit of ideology and of what is and is not appropriate when it comes to the relationship of American Jews to the state of Israel. And part of that, I think, is sort of patrolled by this constant course of, you know, this is not about politics. This is about, you know, identity. It's somehow removed from that. So I think that's at least, you know, one little piece of this way that Israel ends up, even just as a concept or as an abstraction, being a really important piece of thinking about how American Jewish philanthropy works. I think that some people will listen to our conversation, they'll read your book, and they'll see, okay, this is a really fascinating sort of history of philanthropy. And you really approach it from a thematic perspective. It's really interesting the way in which you do it. It's not just chronological, but it's not just about philanthropy. I think that part of what you're talking about here is the politics of the apolitical. Thinking about the broad implications of this research and of this thinking about philanthropy, what does it mean to see things which are so clearly framed as being apolitical, as having a political power and a political valence to it? It seems that there's a certain honesty that it requires. That honesty, I think, starts with being able to say that these institutions of American Jewish life are political institutions, and they don't represent the the full spectrum of American Jews, and they can't speak for all American Jews, and they shouldn't purport to do so. And they should be pretty straightforward about who their constituents are and what their interests are. There is a kind of impulse to use philanthropy as a unifier, to use it as a way to draw disparate groups of people together to make a case for the fact that there is something called the American Jewish community. And I understand that impulse and I even appreciate that impulse. But the really kind of terrible irony of that is that it's done a lot of violence to lots of different people who want to feel like they are part of an American Jewish community and yet are sort of constantly being told, whether explicitly or not, that they don't fit into this kind of purportedly unifying and and very open definition that various institutions are using to talk about what it means to be an American Jew. But I also think that the more that philanthropic organizations, and not necessarily just Jewish ones, but in general, philanthropic organizations would sort of own their politics, own their power, in a sense, the more that they would understand, and not just understand, but actually be able to make kind of important and informed and good decisions about what they might want to do with that power, right? And what their obligations might be to the state of this country. And, you know, at the time that we're recording this, we're living in the, you know, very close shadow of an effort of a group of Americans to disrupt the American legislative and electoral process to essentially sack the U.S. Capitol, right? And, you know, to totally disrupt American democracy. And I think that there are a lot of questions and there are going to continue to be a lot of questions, but there were a lot of questions even before January 6th about what, where are the places and the institutions in American life that actually have a political voice to talk about what the virtue is of an American public life and American civic life. And I think that too many American philanthropic organizations and among them Jewish organizations have decided that they need to just lean into this posture of not being political and, you know, do this kind of both sidesism, right, which has become the position of the pundit. And as a result, 
have eviscerated the case really for civic life. So in a certain roundabout way, the more that there is an acknowledgement of the fact that these are political institutions, the more that they can make an affirmative case for the kinds of values and the kinds of goods, right? We started with the normative value of the public good. Well, they can then make a case for what that looks like and what it doesn't look like. This is a much bigger issue. You know, the question of like ways in which Jewish organizations, Jewish institutions can take a stance on political issues when really both sides is not a good answer. And I think a lot of institutions might be afraid, you know, of alienating members, of alienating donors, you know, by taking a stance or even of losing their 501c3 status, you know, if they do it too openly, perhaps. But we're obviously talking here about a history of Jewish philanthropy, but when you place philanthropy in its context, and then we think about the way in which those contexts are changing, in particular, the broad issues that are taking place in American society, changing perspectives on capitalism, especially by a younger generation that, as you mentioned, is going to have this tremendous wealth transfer over the next few decades. What does this mean in terms of the changing face of Jewish philanthropy potentially going forward? It's really, really hard to say. I take a lot of hope from the fact that it appears that there is a more robust conversation, you know, than I can ever recall about philanthropy in American Jewish life and and beyond. You know, part of this is thanks to some lawsuits and, you know, different families such as the Sacklers, you know, that have been sort of disinvited from participating in philanthropy because of the ways in which their money might have been made. But deeper questions about the role of money in the American political process that the Koch brothers have sort of pushed to the fore. I think that there is more hunger to understand a system that, you know, as I said in the beginning, that had just felt kind of normal, natural, inevitable, certainly in my own life. And I think that there are more people who feel like, yeah, you know, journalists need to cover this and we need to actually start asking policymakers questions about what does it mean to have so much capital that's warehoused in so many different places and that that is not being circulated. So I think that there is a more robust kind of conversation. And I think that has to bode well for people being able to start to imagine other kinds of questions. You know, at the end of the day, one reason it was really important for me, I felt, to write this book is so that people could think about the history of American Jewish philanthropy and imagine other questions that they might ask of this system that seems so large and so, you know, in certain ways overwhelming, like it's just how things are. But there were policy decisions that were made at different times and different decisions could have been made and they still could be made. So I think that it's possible that we, whether by will or simply by emergency, are reaching a kind of point of inflection where our economic system and its incredible exclusions and its incredible concentrations is going to start to feel really unsustainable, that you're going to have too many people who start to see that the balance between capitalism and democracy has become really imbalanced. I can see some reason for thinking that there's going to be some changes to the system. You know, on the other hand, and you had mentioned when university presidents in responding to the pandemic wrote these letters about why they can't spend their endowments, you can really, really see how the rules of our own making and structures that maybe we have inherited start to feel beyond mutation, beyond change. And that is a tough force to contend with. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me personally, 
and I think some people might agree with me, some people might not. But for me, like one of the key elements of why history matters is that it helps us to imagine change. Because as you point out, things may seem like they've been that way forever, but that may just be like a yoke on us so we can't imagine how things could be different. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Lila, so much. I think this has been such a phenomenally interesting and challenging conversation. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to you for listening to our conversation with Lila Corwin-Berman. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.